back to another episode of the Simulated Universe. I'm your host, Riz Verk. I'm really excited today because uh, I have joining me on the podcast, David Chalmers. He is a well-known professor of philosophy at NYU and has written a number of books over the years. Uh, his newest book is called Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy, which deals with all of the, the, the topics that are close to my heart and uh, that we talk about on this podcast often. Uh, he's also been the author of a number of other books going back to uh, 1996's The Conscious Mind, uh, which um, you know, has been cited quite a bit. And so I'm really looking forward to, to diving in. Welcome to the podcast, David. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So, you know, before we talk about the new book, which I've seen and, uh, uh, you know, I've really been enjoying, uh, but uh, let's go back a little bit. I mean, I know you wrote a, an essay for the Matrix website. Um, was it for the home release of, of the Matrix? Is that when, when that happened? Tell, tell me a little bit about that essay you wrote about the Matrix and philosophy way back when. Yeah, I think it was about 2002. So it was after the first, the first Matrix movie came out in 1999 and then i guess the sequels came out in is it 2002 or three maybe yeah, it was around those years yeah I think they both came out in the same year it could have been two or three and just around that time i got an invitation from the production company for the matrix which is called red pill and uh they had a philosopher working for them a guy called chris growl and the wachowskis were super interested in philosophy and in getting people, uh, getting actual academic philosophers to think about the issues in the movie. So I got this invitation from, a, uh, from the production company to write something for the Matrix website. And in fact, in the end, about yeah, five or 10 different academic philosophers um, ended up writing things for the site. And I'd been kind of beginning to think about these issues about simulated universes and how could you know and what would that mean and so on already i'd been thinking about writing a technical academic article but then i thought okay well if i'm doing this for the matrix website let's theme it around that around that and I ended up writing an article called the matrix as metaphysics all about how yeah well first we could be in the matrix and second but the key point was even if we are in the matrix it's not a big illusion actually if you're in the matrix all this is perfectly real and that's kind of formed the basis for a lot of the ideas I've been exploring in this new book, Reality Plus. So it all kind of, in a way, originated in The Matrix. Right. Now, had you been thinking about those ideas before you wrote that particular essay in, in 2002? Uh, I mean, I knew you'd been thinking about consciousness in general, and, and I think you coined the phrase, the hard problem of consciousness, which yeah. is quoted quite a bit today. Um, I would say I'd been thinking about it a little, these issues of simulated universes. I mean, back in... Yeah, in 96, in my book, The Conscious Mind, I talked a lot about the idea that the universe might be a universe of information, made out of information, you know, it from bit, which, of course, very directly connects to these simulation issues. And furthermore, for a philosopher, this stuff is kind of bread and butter, because it goes back to Descartes saying, uh, how do you know you're not dreaming right now? How do you know you're not being fooled by an evil demon thinking all this is real when none of it's real? But for a long time, I thought I didn't have that much new to say about this. Sometime around this time, around 2000, maybe a little bit spurred by thinking about the matrix, I started to think, okay, maybe there's something more to say here. And I started thinking about writing a technical article called Envatment as a Metaphysical Hypothesis, where envatment is, you know, the whole idea of being a brain in a vat. When you're a brain in the vat, you're envatted 
And yeah, about how some of these, what philosophers call skeptical hypotheses, where nothing is real, I wanted to say they're actually metaphysical hypotheses. Yeah, if we're in the matrix, all this stuff around me is real. It's just digital. It's made of bits. It's like an it from bit universe. So I guess I've been thinking about it through those terms. But then having the matrix, the idea of hanging this around the matrix movie, it just, um, A, it provides just a wonderful, familiar, rich, vivid framework that everybody understands. And B, then it connects to so many other issues um, as well. Artificial intelligence, uh, God, you know, if you're in a, as you know, if you're in a simulation, who's the God of the simulation, like all the, uh, right. the creator and so on. So then it kind of spins out in so many directions. Actually, they ended up doing a, um, a special, the Matrix production company ended up doing a couple of special documentaries on the philosophy and the science of the movie that came out on the, I don't know what they call it, the 10, D, the 10 DVD box set. The oh, ultimate really? Matrix. Oh, yeah. I hadn't actually seen those. <laughs> I don't know where it is these days now that no one uses DVDs anymore. But yeah, it was called The Ultimate Matrix Collection. And it was, you know, it was the, it was the original movies. It was the Animatrix, right. the animated versions of this and that. And one... And one DVD was just these two one-hour documentaries. And one of the documentaries was called Return to the Source. And actually, the other documentary was called The Hard Problem. <laughs> and it was, the matrix, it was like the science and the philosophy behind the matrix. And I was, I was in that. And a bunch of other philosophers were in that, um, you know, sp spinning out different philosophical theories around the idea of the matrix. I think maybe you can find them on YouTube now or Vimeo yeah. or, or someplace. Yeah, I'd encourage our, uh, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will want to do that. Uh, and and I'll, I'll check those out as well. Did you get yeah. to meet the Wachowskis? Or? No, I've never met the Wachowskis. Maybe one of these days. Now this book's out. Uh, <laughs> right. I would, I would yeah. love to meet the Wachowskis. Uh, yeah, I've been trying to find ways to get them uh, on the podcast, but it uh, hasn't no happened luck. yet. Not, not yet, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, They're obviously very deep philosophical thinkers. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, people assume if if you're in the same documentary as as, uh, you know, so and so, you must have met them. Like I was on uh, William Shatner's Unexplained recently on the History Channel and people are like, oh, you got to meet William Shatner. It's like, <laughs> well, not really. They filmed us all separately. <laughs> so usually usually how it goes. Mm -hmm. um, so we talk a lot about science fiction and science and, and that border and how porous it is, you know, be, between uh, uh, the two worlds. And uh you know, obviously the matrix being the big reference, but are there other science fiction references that uh, you like when you're talking about the idea of being inside a simulation uh, or, uh, you know, in a virtual reality? Like I often will bring up uh, the other movie in 1999, which is uh, often forgotten, which is you know, one of three movies that year, but the 13th floor, 13th floor. Yeah. yeah, as being perhaps a better representation of a, you know, a certain types of simulations than even the matrix. But uh, what are your thoughts on some of these other, you know, science fiction projects around? Are yeah, there any well, that you like? Yeah. Well, I'm both the 13th floor and the matrix, I think were very heavily influenced by, well, the original simulation science fiction novel, which was what, Simulacron 4? I never remember, Simulacron 3? Simulacron 3, I think it was, yeah. Simulacron 3 <laughs> yeah. by Daniel Galloy in 1964, who had the, you know, the big central idea right there. We're creating simulations and we turn out to be in a simulation. Oh, my God. And that was turned into, uh, what, World on a Wire, Welt am Wehr by Werner Reiner Fassbender, the German director around in the early 1970s. And I right. think 13th Floor was pretty much directly a remake of, uh, 
of World on a Wire, and The Matrix was heavily influenced by it. But yeah, you got to give full credit to Daniel F. Galloy, not otherwise a very well-known science fiction writer, but for really coming up with this whole simulation idea out of whole cloth in science fiction around 1964. Yeah, that was probably the first concrete reference, wasn't it? I mean, I, I often reference Philip K. Dick's speech in 1977 mm -hmm. uh, in, in Metz, France, where he talked about a computer program reality, but this was a decade or so before that. Um, I found a couple of little obscure passages. I mean, there are things you can find even in the earliest 20th century, which are a bit like it, dream machines and so on. But of course, they didn't really have computers because the computer wasn't invented until the mid 30s or the mid 40s, depending on, the, on what you count. Um, then in the 1950s, there's a couple of references. Arthur C. Clarke has a couple of references to computer generated realities, but not the full scale simulation hypothesis. A couple of obscure science fiction stories around 1960. I found, uh, I found a couple of things that kind of looked like, oh my God, could we be in one of those simulations now ourselves? But yeah, but those are just short stories. 64, Galois has this, has this very big, rich novel that sets out the whole scenario. So I think he deserves a lot of credit. Oh, Stanislav Lem too, was very early on with some of this stuff. He wrote a, um, a piece called, the, what was it? The Phantasmos... Phan the phantasm on a okay, the phantasm <laughs> unpronounceable, but a phantasm <laughs> machine, yeah, uh, which is basically a machine for doing virtual reality. And he was kind of it was a review of fictional books in the future, and it was like a review of a book all about the phantasm machine. And this was basically a virtual reality. And in other uh, pieces, not much after that, he wrote this piece non-servium. He created all these artificial intelligence who lived in a simulated universe of whom he was there he was their god and he was faced with all these moral decisions you know can i destroy them do i have to keep them around forever they were debating the nature of their god at the same time the ai machines so yeah right. those are some of the classic early there's so much classic early science fiction on this now of course these days there's so much new science fiction on this i mean black mirror is amazing of course as you know on the uh, on the simulation <laughs> hypothesis they've done so many episodes on this the one about dating hey the yep. main characters turn out to be in a dating simulation. The hang the dj i think was the black hang the DJ, that's right my favorite was the uh the one called san junipero yeah. which was uh, you know about the beach town um, exactly that's the one of the very few optimistic uh black mirror episodes where yeah they they get to upload and live it and and kind of have an afterlife a romantic afterlife that way which is yeah which is a super cool illustration of that idea yeah, well, you know, let, let's talk about that idea a little bit, just because, uh, you know, I find it intriguing. And, mm -hmm. you know, in my book, I laid out the stages to get to the simulation point, which is similar to, you know, Bostrom's post-human stages. But w one of my stages is this idea of downloadable consciousness. Like, can you actually take the entire brain and download it? And so I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Is that something that, you know, the materialists think it's pretty easy to do. We just have to finish the mapping of the neurons. You obviously have some other ideas about consciousness. What are your thoughts about, will we be able to uh, completely upload the brain for as information um, and then have a digital afterlife, right? So sort of the NPC version is what I like to call it, the simulation mm -hmm. hypothesis versus the RPG versions where we're plugged in and we're playing. Uh, interesting. Yeah, I call these, um, in my book, I call these biosims, where you're a biological creature <laughs> plugged into a simulation and pure sims, where you are yourself a, uh, a simulated 
creature inside the inside the simulation. Okay, right, yeah, bio like sims and pure sims. What's right, that? bio yeah. sims and pure sims. Right, bio sims and pure sims. So you've got NPCs and, and RPGs. RPG version. Yeah, R- so, RPG version. Yeah. Same idea. But yeah. now in your pure sims, those are potentially just purely AI creations, right? Yeah. So what about this idea of you know uploading from one to the other and the digital afterlife? I mean, do you, what are your thoughts on 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 that? And I'm sure you have you know all, lots of different thoughts. Yeah. I think it ought to be possible. I mean, I'm. I'm on the record as being in favor of artificial consciousness and in favor of the idea that AIs can be conscious. And even back in my 96 books, there was a thought experiment that I laid out that I still like, uh, which involves gradually replacing the neurons in your brain one at a time by silicon chips. Initially, you've just got a few prosthetic neurons kind of taking over functions from the biological ones when they wear out. Eventually, maybe 10% of your brain is silicon, 20% then all the way to 100%. And let's assume these neurons are perfect uh, isomorphs of the original neurons. So they do all the same kind of uh, computation and interaction with the neurons around them. Then by the end of this, you're fully silicon. And I tried to argue that if you're conscious at the beginning, and by far the most plausible outcome of this is you will still be conscious at the end, assuming you know behavior could stay the same, roughly the same throughout, then, you know, does consciousness fade away while you do this? Does it suddenly disappear? I wanted to argue that no, in fact, you would still be conscious at the other end. So if that's right, it suggests at the very least that silicon consciousness is possible in principle. And we could do all this for it's just a straight, what you have at the other end is a straight simulation. If that's right, it starts to look like a simulated brain could also be conscious in principle. There's still the further question. One question is, will it be conscious? The second question is, will it be me? Or will I just have created a whole new person, like a duplicate of me, like creating a twin of me in the, uh, in the room next door? I mean, some people worry, worry this about the, uh, the Star Trek teleporter, right? What the Star Trek teleporter <laughs> is doing every time is killing the original and making a duplicate. So that, in fact, there's, you were talking about William Shatner. So, in fact, there's maybe a thousand yeah. different Captain Kirks created over the whole life of, uh, of Star Trek because <laughs> they so casually step into the the teleporter every time that kills them. Right. That reminds me of that, uh, that magic movie. What was it called? The prestige. Mm-hmm. Have you seen exactly. that? Where Christian yeah, yeah. goes out and meets Tesla and then he has a transporter, but he's actually creating a duplicate and he kills the duplicate each time or something. Did he kill the duplicate or the original? I'm trying to remember. Oh yeah. Maybe it's the original. I don't maybe remember. It's the original. So in fact, there's been like 10, 20 versions of him over the course of the, uh, of the movie too. Right. Well, that, that's a really interesting experiment that you, you mentioned about the, the silicon. So what do you call that, that thought experiment? I, back in the day, I called it the fading qualia thought experiment because it was about, because it was about uh, yeah, when you replace your brain by silicon, will consciousness gradually fade out? But these days, I tend to call it gradual uploading because it's uploading. Like you said, it's uploading of your brain yeah. to, uh, to, to silicon, ultimately to a simulation. But it happens gradually. It happens a small bit at a time because, you know, the the non-gradual version, like you destroy the original brain, you create a simulation. And a lot of people are going to feel uneasy about that. That's like killing me and creating a new creature. But if you do it gradually, you're still there the whole time. You know, just replace one neuron at a time. You might even be conscious the whole time experiencing this. So I think, you know, if you're worried about this, the safest way to do it by far is gradual uploading. And yeah, that also helps deal with the worry, will it be me at the other end? If I'm here 
the whole time, then maybe I'll just gradually turn myself into silicon and I'll still be there at the other end. So I think kind of gradual uploading is the, is the safest way to do this if you're worried about both being conscious and it's still being you at the other end. So would that be analogous to what's called the connectome and, and mapping the neurons and the connections of the brain into information? Although in this case, you're actually replacing silicon. So you're saying you could also single neuron by single neuron just be creating it, a duplicate of it in information. Is that, is that sort of the, the, the upload yeah. part of it, I guess? Yeah. One version of this is basically, uh, I mean, no one knows exactly how the brain does computation and information processing, but one very one thing that's you know one pretty standard orthodoxy here is that neurons do some very simple computations, yep. and basically this is produced by first by what the neurons do, and second by the ways they're interconnected, which is the uh, which is what you're calling the connectome. So yeah, so then just pr preserve the structure of the connectome, but replace the items doing doing the computation at the vertices from by from biological neurons to silicon neurons interact with the other neurons in exactly the same way, then um, yeah, that, then that would work. And now, of course, it may be com more complicated than that. We've got these, all these other cells in the brain, like the glial cells, who knows if they're doing something, who knows what the blood is doing and all the energy and, um, and so on. But at least the first approximation, yeah, think of, think of the brain as basically a giant artificial neural network, except it's biological. Then we just gradually move it from biological neural network to artificial neural network. And hopefully we got some of the same properties at the other end. Yeah, well, that's a that's a fun thought experiment. And especially since, you know, it's kind of how the, the body works, right? Isn't, isn't it like most of the cells get replaced <laughs> within seven years in the body? Yeah, so right, you're, yeah. you're literally not the same biological cell. So if you replace them, what about replacing them with something else? May not even be that different. Of a... <laughs> yeah, why not? What's, is there something different in principle about silicon compared to carbon here? And yeah, I, I just can't see what that special thing could be. Yeah, cool. Well, let's talk a little bit about this book. Uh, we, we were chatting a little bit before um, before we started recording, and you mentioned that you'd been working on the book for for quite a while, at least five years. So, mm -hmm. t tell us a little bit about you know uh, how you got the impetus to to write this book at this point in time in your career, and you know what has that journey been like to to get the book from that original idea and impetus to today. Yeah, in a way, it all started from that uh, from that original paper on the matrix, the matrix as metaphysics, where I said, yeah, we could be in the matrix. Um, at the time, I called that the matrix hypothesis. <laughs> Should have called it the simulation hypothesis. Better, <laughs> better name. Now I'm now I'm going along with the crowd and calling it the simulation hypothesis. Um, <laughs> and you were a year earlier than Bostrom, right? Or actually, no, to be fair, I think, I think he got there first by about six months. Uh, okay. his, his article was out there and I cite it in the... Uh, in oh, okay, got yeah. it. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, but really his focus and mine were in somewhat different places. He was interested in the simulation argument for arguing that we are actually in a simulation. I was more on the side of, ah, well, we might be, but I was, I was interested in what follows if we are in a simulation. And I in particular wanted to argue that even if we are in a simulation, we could be in a simulation, and that even if we are, um, all this is still real. It's not, yeah, the standard philosophical line is, if we're in a simulation, then the world around us is an illusion and nothing is real. Whereas I want to say, if we're in a simulation, yeah, the objects around us are perfectly real. They're digital objects. These trees and cats and dogs are ultimately digital trees and cats and dogs, but they're still perfectly real. They make a difference in the world. They're not just all in our mind. 
They're not an illusion. They're perfectly real. And really this new book is kind of taking that idea and running with that in a million different, uh, in a million different directions. I mean, one very relevant thing that's happened since then is that virtual reality technology has, has just gotten really big. It's getting ubiquitous and it's just going to get bigger in the future now that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has announced the coming metaverse. Yep. Apple is making their own VR product to be released in the next year or so. Google just announced an augmented reality headset yesterday. Right. Project uh, Iris, right? <laughs> Project Iris, exactly. Yeah. So, so this is suddenly very, very big and very important, not just as science fiction, but as a practical question. So part of what I want to do in this new book is to look at real virtual reality technology and argue, yeah, inside VR, you can still have a meaningful life and objects in VR are still real. So about half the book is on, the second half of the book is about on real virtual reality technology. And the first half is about basically about versions of the simulation hypothesis. First, trying to argue that, that yeah, we could well be in a simulation. I've got a chapter on the Bostrom style simulation argument saying we should really be taking this seriously on statistical grounds, but then arguing that if we are in a simulation, all this is real. And this is kind of where I get into philosophical issues about metaphysics, about religion. How does this connect to the, uh, to the existence of God? Topic you know, you know a lot about uh, information and science and so on. So yeah, first half of the book, simulation hypothesis. We could be in a simulation. And if we are, it's still perfectly real. And the second half of the book kind of taking all that and applying it to real virtual reality technology, saying you can live a meaningful life in a virtual world and yeah, even what goes on in ordinary virtual worlds right now should be viewed in a certain sense as perfectly real. It's digital, but digital is just, digital is not a way of being unreal. It's just a different way of being real. Well, that's, that's interesting. So much to unpack there. Um, you know, the first thing I thought of when, when hearing, you know, the tagline of your book, that the virtual world is the real world is the old, uh, you know, the old story about uh, Bishop Berkeley and mm-hmm. uh, who was it? Was it Dr. Johnson who refuted him by saying, he I refuted dust? Yeah, I refuse that. Stone. Stone. Yeah, <laughs> right. And in your case, you're saying, well, the stone is real, but virtual at the same time. So you're really, <laughs> you would, both guys could be right in that situation. Well, right now, if you kick, right now, if you kick a stone in VR, your foot probably goes straight through the stone. So yeah, this is not going to do so well. It's it depends on when it's being rendered, in. right? If it's being rendered, then it'll probably yeah. go through. And then once yeah. it's finally rendered, then you'll hit it. <laughs> exactly. In the very, in the industry, in the perfect virtual reality of the future where it's indistinguishable, where it is totally indistinguishable, you will totally feel that stone blocking your foot. Yeah, makes sense. I have, uh, as part of my uh, uh, PhD program, uh, I'm going back to some of the old science fiction about the metaverse, like Snow Crash. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when when, uh, Neil Stevenson originally coined the term and how it turns out, you know, he had it where you would walk through other avatars in the main area because it took too much computational power. <laughs> but then when you mm-hmm. went inside a specific institution like the Black Sun, you know, then they would have the collision detection and all of that. So I see it was only for only in special high grade, special access bits of VR that you, you got that kind of rendering. Oh, that's cool. Right, exactly. Yeah. So so that that's pretty interesting. Um, cool. So uh, what are your thoughts about um, 
you know, in terms of the metaverse and where it's going. I mean, there was a book, I remember in Metaverse 1.0 is what I often like to call Second Life, you know, back mm -hmm. in the day. Somebody wrote a book called Exodus to the Virtual World and the question came up, you know, will people basically go and live these virtual lives instead of physical lives? And then, you know, Ready Player One came out and then Ready Player Two came out, which was all about this idea that, you know, if you could have a BCI, a brain computer interface, then people might rather have experiences that way. But but what are your thoughts about kind of the evolution of the metaverse and, and, and where it's going? And will people want to live virtual lives more than, you know, physical lives for at least some portion? Yeah, well, science fiction has been all over this and, and spelt out the scenarios for us beautifully. And philosophers can think about it, can think about it that way. But yeah, in terms of the actual technology, I think it's fair to say, I'm actually... I mean, there's been some amazing advances in the actual technology, but it is slow and there are a lot of challenges in the technology. I mean, it is interesting that really the best example of a metaverse style um, virtual world that we've had to date is still Second Life. And Second Life peaked, you know, 2007, 15 years ago. I mean, it's still out there, but yeah, it's not big. But Second Life is not even immersive. It's not even genuine virtual reality. You just, it's just on a 2D, 3D images, but on a 2D computer screen. They tried to port it to you know VR headsets like the Oculus Quest, but you can't do it because the frame rate is too low to support to support good good VR. So yeah, people have invented have come up with a bunch of other metaverse style uh, virtual worlds for VR headsets. Like probably the biggest these days is VR Chat. Facebook or Meta is coming up with their own called Horizon. There's a couple of others, Rec Room, Old Space. But yeah, none of them are amazing, and none of them have really caught on. And the way that Second Life did to become these places where, you know, in Second Life, people built relationships, they built communities, people worked there, they earned their living there, and so on. For the most part, I think that's not happening with the virtual worlds we have right now. But it's clear, you know, Zuckerberg and Meta are trying to build something like this in the before too long. It, presumably, it's the next step from social media to social worlds, where the where the medium is the world, uh, the world around you, but it's just going to require better, I mean, first of all, better VR headsets, but I think probably the headset factor is just limiting for people in the long run. No one, no one likes wearing these, these big headsets for a long time. So probably then soon we're going to have coming the glasses form factor, which everyone is working on. Yeah. Augmented reality, mixed reality. Sometimes it'll, it'll, you'll be able to use those glasses to do genuine virtual reality, but I'm guessing that having this happen really well is probably 10, 15 years off. And then brain-computer interfaces, yeah, is what we need. We're always going to be limited by, you know, embodiment, for example, um, a sense of our bodies. Right now, we're okay at vision and hearing, but to get embodiment right, it's going to need brain-computer interfaces where, where things, you know, interact directly with the embodiment-based areas of the brain and pleasure and sensation and and so on and i think that's probably the eventual path as you're as you're saying but it's hard to imagine that happening really well in the next 15 20 years so yeah. I think it's probably got to be a slow timeline till we have those full scale and, and, full and what's scale your what's your estimate of of that so i get asked this all the time so i'm gonna now that i'm the host i'll ask okay. you <laughs> you know when will we reach what, what i call the simulation point which is the point at which we can create virtual realities that are indistinguishable from physical reality well, what I say in my book is within a century. Within, a, I think that's conservative, but within a century, we'll have VRs, 
which are indistinguishable from physical reality. Could be sooner. One way it could be sooner is if we develop really good AI in, say, 30 years and just assign the task to the AIs. They'll be so much smarter than us. They'll probably come up with it in another, uh, in another one or two years flat. Uh, so it could happen <laughs> sooner. But conservatively, I'd say within, within 100 years. What do you say? That's usually about the range that, that I give. I say aggressively, maybe 50 years, but certainly within a century is, is, is the more likely scenario. I, think. I do think we're probably going to have one or two VR metaverse backlashes coming in the next little while. I mean, right now we're at a period of such hype with the, uh, the metaverse and Apple and Google will help with that for a year or two. But yeah, by about maybe, who knows, 2026, 2027, I'm ready for, what do they call it? The trough of disillusionment. Right, yeah. on the hype cycle, right? It goes up yeah. and down, yeah. Well, it seems to happen with most technologies. I mean, I've been following Bitcoin and cryptocurrency since 2013, and we've already been through this so many times. Through a couple <laughs> of those, yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, I, I see a lot of pitches uh, in the video game industry, I'm associated with some VC funds, and you know the the, the percentage of those that use the word metaverse has gone up dramatically <laughs> over the last year or so. Yeah, well, it's been it's been good for people like you and me who write books about this stuff, right? Because it suddenly got people really interested in this this stuff. Hey, well, Mark Zuckerberg and the tech companies are talking about this. It must be a it must be at least serious. Yeah. Well, how about augmented reality? I mean, you mentioned the glasses form factor, and it seems to be something that uh, is is probably, by most estimates, may end up taking off sooner than full virtual reality. Although, you know, there's obviously debates on that. But you know, what are your thoughts about how pervasive AR glasses will become? I mean, will we all be wearing glasses even if we don't need them for vision, <laughs> just so we can see the paintings on the walls that are in AR? Or you know, what what are your general thoughts? And and where will that? Which spheres will AR do you think be most useful in? Yeah, well, I think in principle, absolutely. It's so much, it's really hard to see that world where we're all hanging out in VR headsets all the time, at least anytime soon. That would be a massive transformation. I mean, sure, some people, I like I like doing stuff in, uh, in VR with a headset, but it's still kind of a niche product. But you could imagine that things evolve with glasses in such a way that they become the next form of, of computing. Because after all, everything in principle that you do with your smartphone with your laptop or your desktop computer you can do in principle with augmented reality glasses they can just project a screen into the world and a keyboard into the world whenever you need it so it could take over just in the most straightforward way it could just take over from those things uh directly and then there are going to be all these extra things it can do new forms of computing spatially immersive around you information whenever you need it recognizing people information about about things, so yeah, there's just a very natural path there to it being the next form of computing that everyone uses in a form factor, uh, which is relatively familiar. We know glasses, uh, okay, right now the, the AR glasses look a bit weird, but give them time. <laughs> as far as I can tell, it's mostly a technological challenge of getting the, uh, you know, the glasses form factor is just that much harder to work with than the, uh, the headset form factor. And there's all kinds of weird things that have to be done with light fields and so on to get this to uh, to work really well. Um, and I gather that right, yeah, I mean, the AR systems that exist right now are not that impressive, the HoloLens, the Magic Leap, and Yeah, so I've on. tried the HoloLens, but uh, I haven't tried some of the newer, smaller glasses yet. But yeah, the HoloLens is not a great form factor <laughs> for seeing things in the world around you, I think. I think we're all hoping that, you know, Apple finds a way to do this uh, 
to do this right or maybe maybe meta has something up their sleeve or you know, or google but i kind of suspect that we're going to have five or ten years of it being okay but a little bit disappointing and maybe who knows sometime in the 2030s someone will come up with the iphone of of, of ar and there'll be this amazing new set of glasses one limitation i think on ar at least for a long time is going to be the sense of touch you know a lot of people think that with the the, the genius thing about the iphone was the uh, was the touch and the multi-touch people actually like touching what they're uh, what they're interacting with and right now in vr and ar we don't have that sense of touch for the most part and it's not you know maybe there's going to be amazing you know ar gloves that give you some kind of haptic sense of touch when you're uh, when you're interacting with it but i think that's going to be one limitation and maybe when people figure out how to handle touch in ai that could be a big a big step forward yeah the user interfaces aren't that great uh to begin with but you're right about the haptics uh let, let's go in a different direction one of the things you talk about in your book is you know whether we could prove there's an external world mm -hmm. uh, or whether we could uh find evidence or prove or disprove that we are living in a simulation. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's another topic that I get asked about a lot. So I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that and perfect versus imperfect simulations. I thought you did a really good job at uh, kind of describing that. Yeah, you know, this kind of goes back to so many of these traditional questions in philosophy. Could you ever prove that anything out there is real? Could you prove you're not dreaming right now? Yeah, and the contemporary version of this is, can you ever prove that you're in that you're not in a simulation i think in principle we could get strong evidence that we are in a simulation you know the simulators could reveal themselves to us they could show us the source code they could do amazing stuff open up a hole in the sky turn the empire state building upside down maybe it wouldn't be absolute proof that we were in a simulation it could be that you know someone just put a cool vr headset on us or gave us amazing drugs but uh probably pretty good evidence i think you could in principle Get, you know, and there's all there's these things, you know, all the work by the physicists who say, here's the evidence we could get that the laws of physics are just being approximated. We can get evidence of that. So I'd say this, if we're in an imperfect simulation, where an imperfect simulation is one that allows, you know, glitches or imperfections in the simulation, we could certainly get evidence of that. But if we're in a perfect simulation, by definition, you'd never get evidence of a uh, of that, because in a perfect simulation, things are by definition indistinguishable from an unsimulated world. And, for same, and at the same time, I think you can never prove that you're not in a perfect simulation. And the reason for that is kind of obvious because any evidence, you can imagine, what if I got this amazing evidence? That would prove I'm not in a simulation. But it seems like that evidence could be simulated too. So I would say you're never going to prove that you are in a perfect simulation. You're never going to prove that you're not in a perfect simulation. However, you could get evidence that we are in an imperfect simulation. And maybe there's a case for, you know, trying to, I don't know, stress test the simulation, right? Yeah, build simulations of our own within the simulation to see if we, uh, if we start stressing their technology too much and something get glitches and maybe some evidence there. Yeah, there was a there was a, a interesting science fiction movie in 2019 called uh, the Mandela Effect, and I had uh, oh, yeah. the director on the podcast a little while ago, where uh, you know he he was a video game programmer and he he found a quantum computer and was trying to break the simulation itself so he could reset it on another timeline. <laughs> Did he get any evidence? 
well, in the movie, he was able to reset the simulation, but <laughs> wow. okay, cool. uh, so it was, it was kind of a, a fun, I mean, it was a little more about this idea of the Mandela effect at multiple timelines. The Mandela stuff. effect is everyone remembering something about Nelson Mandela back in the day. Yeah. That he died in the eighties in prison, as opposed to being released from prison. I see. And so yeah. it, it's basically when a subset of people remember a slightly different version of events mm -hmm. you know? yeah. uh, and, and it's been sort of tied a little bit closer to simulation theory. So I wrote a little bit about that uh, in, in my recent book as well about timelines. Uh, but one of the areas that I really uh, uh, found interesting in your book was the section on values, right? Mm -hmm. And you asked some interesting questions. C could, can you lead a good life in a virtual world and do simulated, simulated lives matter? Um, and, uh, you know, I was reading a, a short story by uh, science fiction author David Brin. I don't know if you ever read it called The Stones of Significance, where mm. there was a guy whose job it is to simulate things and create millions of simulated beings in order to tell a corporation what's likely to happen, like what's the outcome, do market mm -hmm. research. But turns out those simulations were so perfect that they thought they were real. And so it gets into these questions of should those simulated beings become citizens? Can they vote? Are they, <laughs> or can you really turn them on or off? But, but in any case, talk a little bit about, you know, what you talk about in those chapters uh, of, of, of value. Uh, in a virtual world. One little sideline before getting into that about this issue of using simulations for decisions. Yeah, I used to think, yeah, that's going to make total sense. One of the main reasons to use simulations is to predict the future and to make decisions about what to do. And like the, yeah, that Black Mirror episode, hang the DJ, let's simulate our relationship to see how compatible we are. But the weird thing is, in these simulations, the question, they always seem to simulate a world where people are not using these simulations. The question is, when you run the simulation, do you simulate people who are using these simulations or people who are not using these simulations? If you simulate a world where people aren't using the simulations, then you're not simulating your own reality because your reality is one where you're using your simulations for decision-making purposes. This is going to be a hopeless prediction of the future because it's going to be a future where no one's using simulations. If, on the other hand, you have to simulate a world where people are using simulations, then you're going to have an obvious regress problem. For those to be good simulations, they're going to have to be simulating people using the simulations and it looks like maybe it can never get off the ground. So I've come to think that, yeah, use of simulation technology to predict our own future is going to be very much inherently limited. Sounds like a, a formula for a stack overflow error. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> right. That's exactly. great. Yep. Okay. On the, uh, on the value issue. Yeah. I think this is, um, this is really important. And, you know, there was a philosopher, Robert Nozick, who back in the 1970s, had a thought experiment about this that he called the experience machine. It was roughly imagine, yeah, you could be a body floating in a tank, but it would feed you the experiences of living the most amazing life imaginable. And then would you do that? And he wanted to say, no, that'd be meaningless. You wouldn't really be doing any of this. And maybe he's right about the experience machine, but I would say about a VR, one problem of that idea is it's all scripted. It's all pre-programmed. You're just getting all this fed to you. You're not doing anything. But I think VR is not like that. Virtual worlds, you can actually go in there. You can make your own life. You can make your own decisions. You can build your relationships. You can build your community. I want to argue at the end of the day that in principle, we can have as meaningful a life in a virtual world as in a physical world. I mean, one way to bring this up is through thinking about the simulation hypothesis. Just say we discover that all this was and is a simulation. Does that suddenly make our lives meaningless? Does it make our relationships somehow lose their, their value or all of human history become trivialized? I don't think it does. I think it's all just as meaningful as it was. It just turns out there's more in reality 
than we thought. So I think you're merely being virtual doesn't, and it furthermore, it doesn't mean our lives are suddenly valueless because we are ourselves simulations. I think, you know, simulated lives matter. Um, being Beings who are conscious beings who are themselves simulations matter just as much as unsimulated beings. So I think, yeah, that's how it goes if we're in a simulation. But I think likewise, the same should be true if we of the simulations we create. If we create simulated worlds and inhabit them, our lives in those worlds have meaning and value. And if we create simulated people, you know, eventually AI systems, if we create AI systems that are conscious that we're interacting with, then they matter too. And yeah, I think in principle, they have moral rights. They ought to have legal rights. I mean, obviously socially, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a nightmare. It's gonna be complicated. And if people are creating simulated beings left and right, then can I just create a trillion simulated beings and then say, okay, <laughs> by, de by, by democracy, uh, by, by democracy, these, uh, these beings' decisions are gonna control the future of society. I don't know, it becomes a huge mess. But I do think in principle, simulated lives have all the value that biological lives can have and that simulated worlds can have all the value and meaning that physical worlds can have. So will that lead to legal issues and, you know, different versions of the trolley problem, I guess, with AI, where, you know, you could do something that could kill a million AI or one biological person. Would you get into those types yeah, of no, actually, issues? In the book, I got something I call the simulation trolley problem. Who do you kill? The one conscious being or the five, uh, the five simulations? And some people might say, oh, kill the simulations. Sorry, one biological being or five simulations. Some people would say kill the simulations, maybe especially if you think they're not conscious. But if, like me, you think the simulations are just as conscious as the biological being, I'm inclined to think they have the same moral rights and same moral values. So I'd say save the five, save the five simulations. But will the law go in that direction? I don't know. The law is very obviously is always going to be behind on this stuff. And it depends who gets to vote up. too, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It could be so destabilizing once I do suspect for a long time, non-simulated beings are probably going to have less in the way of legal rights than, uh, than biological beings. Uh, just for a start, it's going to be messy. But I think morally, at the end of the day, they're going to be on a par. This is one reason for just going very slowly and cautiously and creating especially in creating AI, um, you know, because there's many reasons for going slowly and cautiously in creating AI, which is, you know, making sure we all survive is another one. But I think, yeah, the possibility of moral atrocities where we, yeah, create conscious beings and just kill them, that could be a form of genocide. So I think, yeah, we got to be really careful about those philosophical issues. Yeah. So uh, when, as we create these AI characters, you know, I had uh, Lauren Kunze who uh, created, um, um, an AI called Kuki, Kuki.ai, and it's one of the ones virtual beings out there that's gotten a lot of attention. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of the issues that comes up because these virtual beings will live in the metaverse within virtual worlds is how do you know you're talking to a person versus an AI? And should there be some standards? Um, you know, so for example, in, in their, the case of Kuki, they use heterochromia, where one eye is different mm. than the others. And that that's the the signal that this is a you know a, a simulated being or an AI and not a person, but obviously that's just you know something they decided to do. That's not a rule. And so, do we need a set of you know either rules or laws or perhaps just standards you know for virtual worlds and virtual beings? What are your I thoughts? I do on think that? something like that is a good idea, and exactly the same thing is going to come up in 
in VR and especially in mixed realities and augmented realities, which is knowing when an object you're dealing with is virtual and knowing when it's physical. Right now, it's usually kind of obvious because the virtual objects tend to look a little bit, you know, cartoonish and digital and animated. But eventually, as the VR gets better and better and they become indistinguishable, then um, it may not be immediately obvious, at least from uh, at least from looking, which ones are virtual and which objects are physical, which I think could be a bit destabilizing, especially when you, know, you go to reach your hand out and your hand goes through the, uh, the virtual object, but not the, uh, the physical object. I think people are usually going to want to know. So I think probably there's, my guess is for mixed reality, there's going to be kind of standards, which is always let people know when, uh, when something is virtual and when it's physical and have ways to signal that. Yeah, you mentioned the eyes. Maybe there could be like special outlines or shimmering or certain qualities to the, uh, to the virtual entities. I do think at least in the short term, it's just going to be super important to us to know when something is virtual and when something is physical. And yeah, I think in the longer term, when exactly the same issue is going to apply to AIs. I mean, right now, well, actually, yeah. I mean, right now, if you're just talking to a chat bot, like uh, over a chat line, yeah, it's often far from obvious, at least for the first few, first few interactions. Is it a chat bot or a human? If you really try a full Turing test on them, you can figure it out, but you don't want to do that every time. So yeah, in VR, once um. I guess probably what will happen is we have physical looking indistinguishable beings in VR before we have human level intelligence in those yeah. beings. And the same issue will arise. It's just not going to be obvious immediately whether I'm interacting with a conscious person or an NPC. And maybe I could figure it out if I gave them a Turing test, but who wants to do that? So yeah, I think you're probably right that we're going to want some kind of indication yeah, I mean, the, with the uh, deep the fakes, term. which, you know, you talk about in your book, uh, you know, are getting pretty good, right? <laughs> Have you seen the new Matrix Awakens video game or video I game demo? I haven't actually played it. No, I heard about it. Yeah, I saw the video. I haven't played it myself. But uh, I mean, you can still tell that the characters are, are are virtual, but the city that they created looks very real. I mean, really? to the point where it looks like they're really moving around in an actual city. Okay. Uh, as opposed of course, to anyone world. using it right now knows they're in a virtual world. No one is actually fooled by this but yeah but by the time that we we've got actually mixed reality we're interacting with both vr and ar yeah maybe it'll come you could turn around a corner in a city and it's like shit am i seeing the physical city or is this now uh is this now a virtual landscape landscape confronting me i think we're going to want to know so i think we're going to need conventions and standards for this yeah yeah, and that's one of the things that you know I'm finding when when any technology becomes real from an imaginary, you know, standards ends up being more important than we think. Even though standards are kind of a boring thing, usually you shuffle off somebody to a standards board <laughs> in a startup, you know, who has nothing else to do. You're like, okay, go be on the standards board. <laughs> but turns out that they will affect these things quite a bit. I think. Yeah. So, oh, it's going well, to be we've got to have a standards board for the metaverse, or whether uh, yeah, whether like Mark Zuckerberg and Meta are just going to be like doing their thing and Apple will be doing their thing. But I don't know. People evolve some standards for the internet, I guess. So I hope we manage to involve some, some good standards for the metaverse. Yeah. Well, and then there's all the decentralized folks who are trying to build more of a blockchain type metaverse. And so yeah. I mean, my personal feeling is that that will play a bigger role in the eventual metaverse than, than, than what we think, but we'll see where it goes. Do you think they're going to succeed in setting up standards through the, uh, through blockchain? I think that might be one of the few ways, uh, you know, I had a uh, Timo who, who runs a company called ready player, uh, uh, ready player me, 
and mm -hmm. you, you create an avatar and then the avatar can get used in VR chat and a bunch of other worlds. But that required all of those uh, companies to use their avatar engine. And there's like a thousand or so, but this mm -hmm. idea of portability across mm -hmm. virtual worlds is a really tough one. But I think when you start dealing with NFTs and blockchain standards, that may end up being kind of a back way into the standards, you know, as, as people adopt them, but we'll how see. Is, I mean, how, how are blockchains and NFTs going to help with portability here? Well, in the sense that you know they'll it, help with digital ownership so you can verify mm -hmm. who has the ownership and then they provide okay. a, a distributed ledger for that and so that becomes perhaps a way to say okay you are allowed to to actually render that avatar i mean it hasn't gotten to this point yet nfts today's are just this guy owns this right that's the only right. technical part that even the images are they're part of the nft but not technically if you look in the blockchain they, they don't actually exist mm -hmm. in the blockchain but eventually i think that that will provide a way to verify ownership of actual rendered objects and portability but okay, we'll so see that can connect people like yeah biological people with certain digital objects like avatars and say okay this avatar is my is my avatar but is ownership the biggest challenge to portability it's not that. necessarily, but if you you could use it as a back door, <laughs> in mm -hmm. the sense that you could say that as a standard, you know, uh, within a virtual world, it'll only let you render it if you have it, and yeah. therefore everybody has to have the same rendering engine. Right? I they see. Have to use okay, the so there'd be some some standardization. Given that ownership is such a force in our society, and the market really demands it, then we're going to need it, and that will itself require a bunch of technology to get it to work well like for, for, for rendering and okay, maybe that could drive the technology, some of the technology we need for portability. That's interesting. Eventually, we'll see. I mean, that's one of the areas I'd like to do some research in. Yeah, <laughs> so cool. we'll see if it ends up there. Cool. Well, uh, you know, we're, we're almost at the end of our time. So, and I had, of course, lots more questions, but why don't I jump to the last chapter of your book where you asked this question, are we Boltzmann brains in a dream world? So perhaps you could explain to our listeners what a Boltzmann brain is, how it's different from a brain in a vat and uh, talk a little bit about that. And then, uh, you know, if, if we have time for another question, I'd love to ask you about religions, but if not, no worries. <laughs> Yeah, you know, in the book, I mostly focus on this simulation idea. Could we be in a simulation? But then there are all these other analogous or equally or differently weird thought experiments too. That, and in the last chapter, I start, you know, going even further out to think about some of these. One of them is just, you know, could we be dreaming right now? Are we dreaming? And like a dream is like a simulation, but a simulation generated by yourself generated by another part of your brain you are interacting with a simulation generated by another part of your brain and okay that's weird but i would still say in a sense in a certain sense that could be real but it's more limited than the simulation in the sense that well it's all in your mind so the simulation is not all in your mind but a dream is almost by definition all in your mind so maybe that's one sense in which a dream is less real but then a boltzmann brain is another case um yeah, the Boltzmann brain is like a brain that assembles randomly, just by massively improbable event, all the particles come together, such that at least just for, for a moment, you know, for a second or two, you get a brain exactly like mine, evolving exactly like mine. And then after a certain amount of time, it'll just, uh, it'll just stop. You might say, okay, isn't this incredibly improbable? And yes, it's vastly improbable. But in some physical theories, um, the universe can go on for an infinite amount of time um, such that every improbable event is going to happen, not just once, but an infinite number of times. So it's going to turn out that at least on some physical theories, 
there's going to be an infinite number of copies. Take me right now and my brain and my conscious experience. And there's going to be an infinite number of brains like mine, at least just for a second or two out there. And now I can run a version of that simulation style argument. Remember the simulation argument says most beings with experiences like mine are simulated. Well, here we get an argument. Actually, most beings with experiences like mine are Boltzmann brains. They've just assembled randomly for a, uh, for a couple of moments and so on. And then it looks like by parody of argument, I should draw the conclusion that I am probably a Boltzmann brain. But now if I'm probably a Boltzmann brain, it means that nothing in my experience of the world is unreliable. Probably none of the stuff I'm experiencing is real in that case, it's just random. And as all, all my experience is gonna disappear in a moment. Now you might say I can test that. Look, five seconds have passed, I'm still here. Ah, I'm not a Boltzmann brain. But no, now I'm maybe just a new Boltzmann brain with memories of thinking about being a Boltzmann brain 10 seconds ago. So this is very challenging, the Boltzmann brain case. In some ways, if you're worried about, do we know that anything is real? I mean, in the simulation, I can argue, fine, even if we're in a simulation, all this is still real. But if I'm a Boltzmann brain, all this stuff isn't real, I think. So it's in some ways, this case is challenging. But it also leads to weird paradoxes like, if we're in a Boltzmann brain, if we really took that hypothesis seriously, we wouldn't really have any reason to believe in the science that got us to take the Boltzmann brain hypothesis seriously in the first place. Yeah, since our knowledge of the external world is just not reliable. So that kind of undermines the whole idea. And in the book, I try and use this to, uh, to say that in fact, we shouldn't, the Boltzmann brain hypothesis shouldn't, we shouldn't take it as seriously as the simulation hypothesis, but it is something to worry about. I'm not sure I've got to the bottom of it yet. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, it, I always say that it, physicists like to rely on the magic of infinity. <laughs> and so, you know, that's how they get these Boltzmann brains just kind of assembling themselves. Uh, I was on, a, I had a random uh, Twitter conversation with the uh, the comedian Sarah Silverman online, mm -hmm. where we were talking about the simulation hypothesis. And, and she said she was a subscriber to last Thursdayism, right? <laughs> Which I looked up. And so it was, how do we know that the whole universe wasn't created last Thursday? Okay. And, and everything that we remember is, is, you know, basically a false memory based on it was implanted within that creation. And so with the what, Boltzmann what, what brain. If, what, what if it's Thursday today? Does that mean the world was just created or was it a week ago? <laughs> That's right. At a certain it, point, you must transition to, uh, the, world to the next going Thursday, week, right? So the world was created just now. Uh, right, right. Which is the, the Boltzmann brain thinks that the world has a certain history. Exactly. That, that's, uh, well, this stuff is, is great. As uh, somebody, uh, somebody told me, you know, any one of these topics could be, oh, that would be fun to talk about for a couple of hours over <laughs> some beers or a late night in a dorm room. Um, and, and so this has been, you know, uh, a lot of fun for me to be able to chat with you about these topics. And I really want to thank you for taking the time on, uh, on the weekend here to uh, talk to me about your new book. Yeah, well, it's great to talk to you about this stuff as someone you've thought about this, all these issues so much that I've got to get a hold of your new book now, The Simulation Multiverse. That looks really cool. Uh, yeah, that was a fun one. It was kind of a going deeper in the rabbit hole that I, I actually didn't expect to, but somehow simulation theory led me down, you know, multiple timelines in the Mandela effect. Yeah, very but good. Now we've got, we've got the multiverse, we've got the metaverse, we've got all the, uh, all the verses coming together. Yeah, and even I'll I'll get them confused, you know. Sometimes when I'm talking, I'll say the simulated metaverse or the. You know, that's great. Well, for our listeners, if you um, if you haven't already, you should uh, pre-order or order the book Reality Plus: Virtual Worlds and the Problems of Philosophy. Uh, thanks, David, so much for joining me on the podcast, and I hope you'll come on again sometime.
Thanks. I'd love to. It was great talking to you.